0: Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 1, vision of Christ and the seven churches. I'm going to walk you through. We've kind of covered the prologue of the book of Revelation so far. I've given some hints about it, but let me just take you through briefly of the prologue of the book. It says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. You get it through John. He testifies to what he saw, and again, he blesses all who read uh, the words of this prophecy. Because the time is near, there's my idealist theme. And then he gives greetings in verses 4 to 8 to seven churches. He is writing to seven real churches, and he greets them with grace and peace from Christ. Not only does he greet them, but um, he tells them a few things. About themselves, he speaks to them as his fellow sufferers. Chapter one, verse nine. He says, "I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, and kingdom, and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus." He says words of encouragement. He says in verse six, "I'm moving around here a little bit." That he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. He tells us. In verse 7, that Christ is coming, and he is going to uh, bring sorrow on those who pierced him. It tells us in verse 9 that, that they need to patiently endure for the coming of that kingdom that is ours. He tells them, in essence, then, that in this life, our lot is suffering and glory. That's a familiar theme, really, throughout the whole New Testament. Suffering and glory. Suffering of decay and the, and, and the wiles of the devil, although there's a seal on us that limits, we are going to suffer, he tells us. Satan does have power in his anger to cause the church misery. But there is also glory. The book of Revelation says, as does the New Testament several times, that Christians are kings. They are, they are possessors of the kingdom, that, that every believer is a king and reigns with Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 5, He loves us and has freed us from our sins and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve God. And chapter 2, verse 26, says the same thing. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. Now that's applied to Jesus in Psalm 2 and Revelation 12. But he says, no, even a Christian will have all authority and will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 say something similar. They say that, that um, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he purchased men for God, for every tribe, language, people, and nation, and has made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. I want you to believe that this theme, and it's to be found elsewhere in, in uh, Romans, we're more than conquerors, and in 1 Peter we alluded to it briefly, that Christ says that even in the midst of your troubles, your persecutions, and your sorrows in life, you do reign with Christ now. now you may, if you're in a certain mood, laugh at that. You say, Reign over Christ? I can't even reign over my car. It doesn't always start when I want it to, and you should see the debris piled up in the, in the passenger seat. Rain. Over the world, you should see my desk. I can hardly even keep my paper straight. Rain over Christ? Why, my telephone rains over me with a tyranny of its, of its jangling calls and so on. Look at your yard. Rain? Look at the weeds in my yard. By the way, if, if you're ever feeling really distraught about your yard sometime and somebody says, you know, your yard is full of weeds, what you say is, no, I'm fostering biodiversity see that'll that'll really work for at least for a little while I don't know it works with everybody but your but your spouse put it that way but no Christ does call us really to reign over our cars over our yards over our work over our family over our clock that is the, that is he doesn't say you should reign we do we are a kingdom of priests that's our true nature and when our life was erect, that's contrary. And when we think, well, you know, the Lord saved my soul and the rest of it's out of control. That's not biblical thinking. That is not. The Lord wants us to reign for Him. And if our, the domain of our reign is small, fine. But whatever reign we have, whatever domain in which we exercise our governance of His world, in that we should take it seriously and seek to reign under Christ for his sake. Do you believe that? I gave you four verses and and some others. That is indeed what a Christian should do. Well, how could a Christian reign? It would be very easy to question this if you think about John on the Isle of Patmos. mentioned briefly the fact that Patmos was a prison colony where laborers went to work themselves to death on the mines. There are different reports, actually, from ancient church history Some people say the minds were all played out. Others say they weren't. But it is pretty well agreed that when people went to Patmos, they usually died pretty fast within a few years after that. How could John say he reigned from Patmos? One fact is almost a perfect illustration of reigning even as one suffers because he governed his churches. He was able to write them letters. He received visions from Christ that he was able to portray to the church, the seven, and all throughout. In other words, it's easy to lose sight of this in the pettiness of our daily tasks, inertia, opposition, sin, lethargy, and persecution. But God finds a way that we should reign. That's the overture, the prologue, the preliminary message. Now let's take a look at the first vision of Revelation. The first vision of Revelation is a vision of Christ. And if you're the kind of person that likes to do things this way, You could even stop and close your eyes and envision what I'm going to read to you over the next moment or two. John says, I turned and to see the voice that was speaking to me, when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair... "...were white, like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was shining like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell, at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me and said, "'Don't fear.'" I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. hold the keys of death and of Hades. Let's we'll stop right there, and I'm going to ask you to join with me one more time and see if you can detect the symbolic value of this passage. Let's start with the very first one. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and one among the lampstands was like the Son of Man. Now, this would happily, as your reading points out, is, is specified for us. What are the lampstands? They're, they're the churches. It's written down there in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars is this. Seven stars are the angels, the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, first of all, we have a vision of the Son of Man walking around, right? He's among the lampstands. He's in the midst of the churches. All right, he is, next, dressed. He's dressed in a robe that goes to his feet and in a golden sash. Now, you may not know this, but a golden sash and a robe to the feet uh, symbolized the opposite of someone who was ready to work. Workers had relatively short garments, maybe up to about their knees or thereabouts, you know, from the pictures and so on, maybe a little bit above the knees. And uh, they often kept them kind of short. They had an undergarment underneath that they could tuck. Their outer tunic into when they were laboring, but if you're dressed in something down to your knees, this would be a, a male figure. Not so we don't think, you know, a fancy gown for, you know, some kind of a, a ball or whatever. If you're dressed like that, you are not dressed for work, so you're not a worker or somebody who doesn't need to work. And then of course you've got a golden sash, and gold is the color and the metal of royalty so we have a royal figure uh, shown by his clothing and then we have a white head and white hair now what does whiteness signify in the bible usually and what does okay whiteness is purity and what does white hair signify okay it signifies wisdom that's right We get that from the book of, of uh, Proverbs so we have a royal figure among the churches a very wise figure in his eyes are like blazing fire. Now, what do eyes do in real life and symbolically? What do eyes do? They see. And what, does, what do blazing eyes or what does fiery eyes suggest? What, what, what does fire do? Okay, it judges. Is that all fire does? Purifies. Okay, very good. Fire has two values in the Bible. It burns in judgment or it burns in purification. We see that Jesus has eyes like blazing fire. It means he sees. And for some, he sees and will judge. And for others, he sees and will purify. Now, that theme will be played out repeatedly throughout the letters to the seven churches as he sees with his fiery eyes the sin that's in five of the seven churches and warns them. He'll remove their lampstand, fight against them with his sword, search their hearts. He tells them to spit them out of his mouth and so on because he sees the sin in of the seven churches five feet glowing like bronze now what do feet do in the bible in general that's not an easy question but when we read things like here's a common usage symbolically i will put my enemies as a footstool under your feet feet rest on conquered or vanquished enemies the only time you really see this nowadays at all i wouldn't see nowadays even but in pictures of, of uh, people on safari and they, they shoot a lion or they shoot a wildebeest, they don't do that very much. What does the soul, what does the gunman do? He puts his foot on the beast. If Hopefully today, you know, maybe only a zebra or something, something plentiful. Not cute zebras, I know. Um, so somebody gave me such a look when I said a zebra. All right, wildebeest, they're not cute. There are plenty of them. You know, you put your foot on a wildebeest, but you don't put your foot on a on a rhinoceros or a lion because they're getting rare. So you put your foot, and a foot glowing, might resemble these glowing bronze feet, might make us think of other feet that glow or or other feet of symbolic images in the Bible. In fact, in Daniel chapter two and seven and ten, you have images of, of Great figures who have feet. Now, if you think about the main image of the book of Daniel, the head is made of, come on, you're with me, you know the book of Daniel. The head is made of gold, and then next comes silver, next comes bronze, and next comes feet made of clay and and iron. Now, how is a statue going to hold up? It's got gold at the top, one of the densest metals and then silver, another very dense metal, and then a, a foundation of clay and iron. How's that going to work? And it's not going to work well at all. And that's the whole point. Not the whole point, but a large part of the, of the point of the imagery of Daniel. These grand kingdoms are resting on a, a, an unstable foundation. They have, no, they have no strength, and they'll crumble and they'll fall. But Jesus has a foundation of bronze, which is malleable and strong. It's a very strong foundation. He has a voice like many waters, which you may think of a pounding surf, simply a grand and strong voice. And in his right hand, he holds the seven stars. Now, what would the seven stars be? What are the seven stars? Seven angels. And what does that mean? Does that mean that each church has its own angel? You know, like, like Jesus seems to say that each child has its guardian angel. Does each church have its angel? Could that be true? Does every church has its own angel? How many of you have been reading Frank Peretti lately and believe that each church has its angel? I'm I'm reluctant to say that each church has its angel, and here's why. Because if there is such a thing, it's only in this passage that this is mentioned, and I'm reluctant to make a doctrine out of a vision in which things aren't fully explained. It says seven angels. But, now this is a little bit of Greek. The word angel... Is taken from Angelos, Greek word. We have Los Angeles, which is the city of angels. That um, gets into Spanish. But Angelos, ordinarily, in the Greek language, does not mean angel. It ordinarily means a messenger. It's an ordinary secular use. It's a very commonly used word. A messenger, if you send a message by a messenger, you sent it by an Angelos. That's what you did. Do churches have messengers? that we know of from elsewhere in the scriptures? The answer is yes. The messenger is the preachers, teachers, pastors of the church who carry the message of God to the church. So I take it this way, that the seven stars that Jesus holds says that Jesus is especially guarding the leaders of the church. He walks around among the churches and guards the churches. Now as he does this, he's with flaming fire and he's got his dominion, his power. He sees the judge That is the opening vision of the book of Revelation. He's the royal, divine judge, attractive, yet not to be trifled with. I've already cited C.S. Lewis once, shall we say? This is like, from the Narnia Chronicles, this is like Aslan. He's attractive. You want to nuzzle up to him, but you don't. Because he is a lion, after all. And it's not entirely safe to nuzzle up to a lion. Even a very attractive lion. And that's Jesus. We love Him. We want to nuzzle up to Him. But He is also a, a, a frightening, frightening image. On the other hand, He does say, does He not, in verse 17, and it's good that He does, don't be afraid. as I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead and alive. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, this vision of Christ is going to define the churches, and the elements of the vision that are found here are going to keep coming up again. I want to show you this in just a moment. Maybe I'll do one right now. Even this little one we just talked about, I am the first and the last, the living one, dead and alive, there in verse 19, comes up again in the letter to the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. The church of Smyrna is one that is about to suffer for ten days and may suffer, do you see in verse 10, even to the point of death. And to the church that may suffer death, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Do you see the connection? And what's going to happen with all seven churches is that one element of this vision is going to be applied to each church. And it's going to be what each church needs. But each church needs to hear from Christ. Or how about the church of Thyatira? Chapter two, verse eighteen. This church is too tolerant, it tolerates Jezebel, who misleads the people of God and into sexual immorality and food that sacrificed to idols, they eat at her urging. Well, what does Jesus say? What aspect of the vision would a church that tolerates sin need? It needs to hear. His eyes are like blazing fire, and he sees. Or we would have a church like Ephesus, which we'll talk about in a minute. Church at Ephesus is a church that's lost its first love, and it's and it's it's dutiful and it's hardworking. And that church is going to hear that Jesus is the one who holds it in its in his hands. That their duty and their doctrinal correctness is not their salvation, but Jesus holds them. So each letter is going to be exactly what this church needs, showing us that that the vision of Christ defines the church or or establishes the church. In other words, this isn't just teaching. We don't just have Jesus standing up there and teaching. Jesus doesn't just teach the church. If you see him as he is, that will constitute the church. The church does not rest primarily on the teaching of Christ. It rests, rests on the person of Christ. And knowing Christ in his glory, that's what the church rests on. Liberals say the church rests on the teaching of Jesus. We say it rests on the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes? So we look at the churches for a little bit then. See what the Spirit has to say. The churches. I'm going to give you a little <laughs> overview of the seven churches or how to read them a little bit. Uh, at one level, you could look at the seven churches and see a threefold structure in the letters. There is, number one, a reminder of what they are through God, through God's grace and in Christ. There's, number two, a recognition that even good dogs get fleas, that every church has its problems. Every church has its sin or its persecution, and they need to hear what the Lord has to say to them about their problems. And third, there's a realization that hope, God and the promises of Christ will motivate them. So that you can give that triad in each letter. There's a more more ambitious outline I could give you of the letters to the churches. And that has seven aspects. Not all, every church has those three I just gave you, but in more detail, not all have all seven that are going to follow. There's an address to the angel of the church. We'll see this in a minute in chapter 2. Then there's Christ's self-designation fitted to the need of the church there's a commendation that they're faithful at some point there's a condemnation, some rebuke or point of infidelity two churches don't get that that does not appear in two letters and then of course if that doesn't appear two churches also don't have the next thing but the other five do a warning of possible punishment then there's an exhortation he who has ears to hear, let him hear and a promise of reward to the faithful church that pattern holds almost for all the churches, too, don't have a sin that they're warned about. Overall, all seven churches are exhorted to remain faithful, to shun compromise, to avoid misbegotten tolerance and mistaken indifference and lukewarmness. They're urged to be strong, to make no compromise, to give themselves without reserve to Christ. And if they fail that, then the Lord is going to threaten judgment. Okay, that's an overview. Let's look at one church in maybe the most detail uh, and see how it actually works. Church at Ephesus. I'm going to read these maybe kind of slowly. And you can see, can you, I'll even ask if you'd like in your notes to, to write in where the seven elements are. Okay? See if you can see all seven, what verse they fall in. Okay? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Got it? Address to the angels in verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. That's Christ's self-designation. I'm not going to give the rest to you. You can see them yourself. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. And have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Yet I have this or hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This... You have in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He has ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's good about this church? What's commendable about this church? Did you see how long the commendation was? Yes. What's good about this church? Yes, Linda. Perseverance. Very good. They persevere. What else is good about this church? What about doctrine? Okay. Very good. They test doctrine. And they're not going to be fooled, right? They test it well. What else? They don't tolerate evil. Intolerant where one should be intolerant. What else? They expose false teachers. Let's put that under testing doctrine. I'll put expose F.T. for false teachers. What else? Okay, they endured. Or they persevered. I'll put it with this. They endured hardship, persevered despite hardship. What else? Anything else? They're patient. Anything else? They're hardworking. Right. They're a hardworking church. Sounds like a pretty good church, huh? It's a pretty good list. What's their problem? That's their commendation. What's their condemnation, Beulah? Fell away from their first love. What does that mean? Stop making Christ Lord of their lives. Let's take a look at this. Can you see, if you've listed this much, can you see that the self-designation is just what this church needs? What does the self-designation say? Who is Christ for this church, to this church? No, no, no. Look specifically what it says about Christ. Now tell me exactly what it says. Don't paraphrase. Tell me what it says. It says, He holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the churches. So He holds, what does He hold? Who does He hold in His hand? He holds the messenger of that church. And He walks around among or within the churches and among that church, His presence. And that is exactly what this church needs. Because Jesus knows the hard work and the toil at Ephesus. They endure, they don't tolerate evil, they test those who call themselves apostles. But their virtues are more hard work than love at work. That's their problem. It's more hard work than love at work. They hang on. They hold out with a tough sinewy rectitude and stoicism and dutifulness supplant love so Jesus reminds them their life does not consist of their hard work their dutifulness their hatred of evil those aren't bad things but that isn't the source of life the source of life for a church is that Christ holds the church in its hands they exist they endure through him not through their ecclesiastical rigor. That's the point. Not against ecclesiastical rigor, mind you. But it's not the source of life. If you look at the commendation Jesus gives, he says, I know your work. Do you see it? I'm going to give you kind of a literal trail. I know your work. I know your toil. I know your endurance. See how hard they're working? They're working. They're toiling. They're enduring. They cannot tolerate evil. The Greek word there... Is, um, is, I'll just tell you, is bastazo, meaning uh, they can't bear it, they can't carry it. They, won't, they can't stand it, but they, don't, they won't carry it around. They, they can't bear it. Sort of a double entendre there. And they test those false apostles. But then he goes on to say, this doesn't show up in your translations, you have endurance and you carry, and it's the same word. The word bastazo means bear or carry. He says you can't bear evil but you do bear or carry on my name and you work and you toil there's two words the word for toil is played with here too you toil, the word is kapos and then you, but you aren't toiled out it's a verbal form kapos again kapiajo is the word so he's, he's using little plays on words to, to show how we might say how hard working they are how they bear I see it but I'll go just a minute more Um, they can't they bear Christ's name but they can't bear evil it all sounds like bearing loads using all these words to signify loads that they bear and all the rest praises them we didn't quite mention this for their hatred of the Nicolaitans what does that mean? hatred of the Nicolaitans hatred of the Nicolaitans is uh, down there in verse 6 not really quite specified, but the Nicolaitans come up again in chapter 2, verse 15. And it comes up in a context of Balaam teaching Balak to entice the Israelites to sin and commit sexual immorality. See that? 2, 14 and 15. Remember Balaam? Remember what he was hired to do? What was he hired to do? Hired to speak against or curse Israel. He took the money. When he got there, he... Couldn't do it. The Lord didn't let him. But he'd he'd gotten his advance, you know. He'd gotten his advance money. So he kind of had to do something for Balak. He said, I can't curse them, but I can give you a little advice. If you entice them into idolatry, which often had sacred prostitution, you might be able to get them that way. And he did. And it worked. This church couldn't stand the Nicolaitans. It can't stand... Sexual immorality. That's another thing in favor of this church. And if I can just dwell on this one a little bit. There is, in the commendation that they test doctrine, they're intolerant of evil, intolerant of Nicolaitans. There is the blessing. There's sort of the first moment here. There's the first moment of blessing intolerance. You say, what does that mean, blessing intolerance? What it means is that that the book of Revelation has this theme that that the time of judgment has come. The day of punishing evildoers is here. The book of Revelation says, among other things, in chapter 18 and 19, Hallelujah for her smoke goes up forever. Do you know that passage? Rejoicing in the death of the wicked. Now, what are we supposed to make of that? When do you rejoice in a victory? When I was, I was on a church basketball team once, and our church basketball team had a total of about 12 able bodied men to draw from. Some days the coach put in no subs. If he thought there was a chance to win, the, uh, the good players played all game. The truth is, we only had four good players, maybe three and a half even. And one day we were playing a team that had 1,000 able bodied men to draw from. At least that's what it seemed like. On their team were something like, you know, five guys that played in college and three guys that played in high school and college. And, you know, you know what? We beat them. We beat them. We beat them. A bunch of dead exhausted, not all that good. Three of us had the best games of our lives. And I want to tell you, when we we won that game, we were bouncing up and down. And, you know, I mean, they'd beaten us. uh, Another game of the season, they beat us 78-17. to two of our good players was away, were away for that game and in fact the game we beat them the score was 41-40 to 40. we were behind 11 nothing, and I scored our first basket and I heard the guy say loud and clear there goes our shutout we beat them We gloated. We beat him with one second to go. Their best player was kicked out of the game with five minutes to go because he couldn't stand the fact that they were maybe going to lose. Had a temper tantrum right on the floor. We beat him. We gloated. That's not what we're supposed to do with a victory over evil, though. You also have gloating over victories, you know, like action movies, you know, the good guy is beaten up and shot and stabbed and, you know, betrayed. If it's not one of those bloody movies, you know, betrayed and lied about. His house is robbed. His children are taken away from him. And then he goes on, you know, you know that style of movie. I don't really know about him. I've just heard about him. But <clears> then <throat> he goes on a rampage and he kills the bad guy. Yeah, I killed the bad guy. That's gloating, too. We beat him. That's not the way in which a Christian celebrates the overthrow of the evil. But there is a place. Book of Revelation does say, Hallelujah for her smoke goes up forever. It does say it. It does say it. And this is the first blast as we come out of the, we might say, the end of the gospel age is envisioned. The age of the gospel is God's love towards sinners. God's infinite mercy. God loves us while we get sinners. Everyone can come. It's the age of the, of, the, of the tax collector and the Pharisees, and the tax collector goes home justified. You know, It's the age of Paul, who persecuted the church and became a leader of the church. That's the age we're in. But that age does come to an end. On the last day, to purge the universe, evil has to be destroyed. And we're not sad when that happens. We don't gloat. The way we gloat when the bad guy gets killed. We don't gloat when the mean team that always stomped us in the mud finally loses to us. But we don't cry either. Because we know that the time of God's judgment has come. And there is, a, there is such a thing as a blessed intolerance. Why? Not because we delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't, nor should we. Ezekiel says but there is a sense in which God's perfect reign can't be manifest as long as evil has free run free reign that has to stop and when it does we give thanks that evil has been punished at last and the earth is purged and that is the first glimpse of it that we have here and it's glimpsed earlier you know there are psalms, Psalm 5 and Psalm 11, that say that God hates evildoers. Psalm 139, verse 21 says, I hate those who hate you. We don't talk about those verses, those psalms very much. They're sometimes called imprecatory psalms, psalms that call for judgment. We might say, the it's the same psalmist who says, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. And the psalmist understands that in the final analysis, some become so identified with their sin that they are their sin. It's one thing to lie, it's another thing to be a liar. The book of Revelation says there will be no liars in the kingdom.
1: There will be no murderers.
0: There are people who murder, and then there are murderers. Not everybody who murders is a murderer. Murderer is someone who has no compunctions about murder. Who murders over and over. Who murders and doesn't care. The liar, the fornicator, the thief is not someone who steals once, but it's a way of life. You understand? And those will not enter the kingdom. They'll be judged. And and it's right. And and those are the ones who are right for judgment. And the Lord says, I hate them because they're, I, they're they. Themselves and their sin are one and the same. There's no gap between them. They are their sin. And the judgment comes. And the letter to the church at Ephesus is the first glimpse of that. Now let's move on to then the correction toward this church. The problem they have is that they have left their first love. And one way of putting this would be to watch the way in which the language of Revelation chapter 2 operates. It says things like you persevere, you test your doctrine, you're intolerant of evil, you're hardworking, and so forth. But what we miss is a passage like First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3, which says, We remember your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in Christ Jesus faith, love, hope that's the origin of good works and that's not really mentioned here or we could think also of uh, Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 where Paul says what counts is not works but faith working in love there's a place for work but faith working in love that's what he wants to say to them or we can think of 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, I am nothing, no matter what I do, even if I give my body to be burned. This text reminds us then that there is more than one way for love to grow cold. Jesus predicted at the end uh, of uh, Matthew chapter 24, the love of many will grow cold. There are two ways for love to grow cold. One is by drowning in yourself your love, your passion, your heat for the Lord in a sea of iniquity sin, overt sin will make your love grow cold but it's also possible for love to grow cold through dutifulness and if I can remind you of a theme that, uh, that uh, is going around in, in uh, our circles right now um, what he's saying is don't operate out of a deficit don't do your good deeds out of deficit motivation that is to say Don't do your good deeds as if to obtain God's favor. Take a child who's never been approved by their parents. And really harshly disapproved by their parents for years. Or maybe one parent or the other. Never could please mom, never could please dad. Many children will spend the rest of their lives trying to prove to mom and dad that they're okay. Even after mom and dad are dead, for goodness sakes. To prove that it's true, they're worth something. That's deficit motivation, and some Christians can operate. At, you know, I've got to prove to God that I'm worthy. I've got to prove that He, you know, He that He should love me. And that's not Christian thinking. That does not lead to peace, and it doesn't lead to love with God. Good deeds don't win God's approval. God gives us His love when we repent and believe. We produce our good deeds because we're approved, because we belong to the family. We produce good deeds. Not in order to gain. How can, how can a church get cold? Can you just do a little something with me, Bible knowledge, a little bit? Who started the church at Ephesus? Does anybody know? Apostle Paul. What other notable people spent time at Ephesus? Timothy was there. Letter First Timothy. Timothy was in Ephesus. Apollos was there. Very good. Who else was there? If we think of Apollos, we often think of somebody else. A couple. Priscilla and Aquila. Right pretty good start when were they there what year 60 AD somebody whispers over here Okay, it's probably a good number church probably started in the mid 50's and Timothy would be there in the late 60's and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila throughout the 60's what year are we in now 95 AD maybe now from our perspective looking back 1900 plus years seems like the gap between ninety five AD and sixty AD isn't very much. But go back from today, thirty five years. It's pretty much. A lot that's that's a whole generation plus. And what this church teaches us is that it's possible for a church to have a great start and even hold on to morality and doctrinal purity and dutifulness. But you can't survive on the love of a previous generation. It's like sometimes people say, any church that has a memorial in the title is dying. Now, I'm not saying that about any... I'm not, I know there's a church in town here, Memorial Church. It's a good church, and I like the people. But some people say that. And here's why they say it. Because they say it's looking to the past. They're looking to the faith of somebody who ran before. I don't believe that every church. I'm just saying a church can't live, can't thrive on the faith of another generation. If you have a church, I'll put it this way, leave the word memorial out of it. If you have a church that talks about how great things were 30 years ago, you have a dying church. You can't rest on the faith of a previous generation. The doctrines, the deeds. Maybe those can continue, but not the love of a church. That can't happen. That's their problem. Okay, the exhortation is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And you see, even in that little promise, it also fits their need. He says, the one who conquers, that may be an appeal to their activism, but he then says to the one who conquers, I will give to eat. Not, you will earn the right to eat. I'll give it to you. That's the perspective. Well, let's do a quick survey of the rest of the churches, shall we? do it in a few minutes because i'm going to just hit some highlights the church at smyrna the church of smyrna i already commented on at least briefly here's the self-designation chapter two verses seven eleven, that jesus is the alpha and the omega the one who died and came to life again if they face death which they shall verse 10 says if they face death they should remember that they serve a lord who died and came back to life but Jesus tells them that he knows their poverty. Church is poor, they're persecuted. Knows they must endure slander and persecution, even to the point of death. And they're not rebuked. It's an unrebuked church. It's a church that hears a promise. If they're faithful, they'll receive the crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death. Can I comment on that? Everybody's going to die once. But you don't want to die twice. Dying once is the death of the body. The second death is eternal death. So they die once, but not twice, if they're united to Christ. I'll move on quickly to the, the churches that are rebuked, take them kind of all at once. Church at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea. Here are their sins. They've all compromised. They have all Compromised. Pergamum tolerated compromise regarding sex, sexual morality, and emperor worship. Chapter 2, 14-16 alluded to that briefly a minute ago. Thyatira has tolerated Jezebel, which also seems to be immorality. Sardis has fallen asleep and soiled its clothes, 3, 2, and 3. And Laodicea has lost its zeal and its awareness of its need of sin and grace. They think they're rich and they don't need any, any help. Those are all churches that have fallen or failed. Let's take a look at how, just to highlight here, how Christ's nature defines the church. Okay? Pergamum, chapter 2, 12. The self-designation is, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, that sharp two-edged sword is a sword that cuts. It cuts both ways. It judges. Later on in Revelation, we're going to have Jesus appearing Chapter 19, with a sword, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth to slay his adversaries. What he's saying to this church is, you may be treated like one of my adversaries, judged by me. All right, what's their problem? It leads to this puzzling reference to Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Now, we already talked about Balaam uh, leading the people to sin and the Nicolaitans' um, immorality, sensuality. The church also seems to be uh, compromising with regard to emperor worship. Look at the end of verse 15. Uh, No, I've lost it. Um, No, 14. You have people holding the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now, that little reference to food sacrificed to idols. Do you know that from anywhere else in the Bible? In the New Testament? Okay, 1 Corinthians... And Romans 14, right? First Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. What does Paul say about eating food sacrificed to idols? There, he says it's okay. Wait a minute, let's let's hone that a little bit. He says it's okay if, okay if it doesn't cause your younger, bro- your your uh, your weaker brother to sin. And for example, one of the bits of advice he gives, very practical counsel, is if you're ready to eat a shish kebab, right? And just, you're ready to bite into that steak or that shish kebab. And, and just before you bite, somebody says, By the way, got this in the offered to idols section of the meat freezer. Okay. And you know, just as you're ready to bite in, you say, You know, I think I'm a vegetarian today. I think I'll just chow down on, you know, on those uh, you know, red tomatoes and, and uh, pineapple and, and uh, onion rings and, and uh, maybe make a meal out of that. Why? Because if it's enough of a problem that you're, in somebody's mind, that your brother mentions it to you, that proves that he's not quite sure. And if he's not sure and may think that, you know, we're pulling one over on God, then it's a sin. Because the principle is, even if it isn't a sin, if you think it's a sin, if you think you're pulling one over on God, that's a sin. Okay? Right? Everybody knows that. That's why, to use an example that doesn't, no longer counts, if somebody thinks putting makeup on is wicked, then they'd better not put on makeup. And you shouldn't tell them, oh, come on, put on some makeup, it won't hurt. Because they think that they're sinning. Even though, maybe I don't know if everybody here would agree, maybe almost everybody would agree, that they're wrong, it's not objectively a sin. Somebody's going to come up to me after class and tell me something. <laughs> woman's adornment should be in the beauty of holiness and so on. I agree with that. Let's just suppose. All right. But by now, things have changed. And by now, the stakes are raised when, no pun intended, when when 1 Corinthians and Romans were written, it was in the 50s before systematic persecution of Christians had started before you could be persecuted just for being a Christian, before the emperor said, bow or die. And now the day has come when even the tiniest hint that you're willing to participate in the system of emperor worship, even the tiniest hint is intolerable. Even buying food that was offered to an idol, which is nothing, an image of the emperor who is only a man, But even that much participation, because the issue is joined, should not be allowed. There is a time for extreme measures for no compromise. And Jesus says, repent lest I come and fight against you. What he says is, if you want to avoid war with Rome by compromise, you will avoid war with Rome, but you won't avoid war. You'll get it from me. If you don't fight with Rome, you'll fight with me. Better to face the sword of Rome than to face the sword of God. And I want to tell you, that's something that I think our church needs today. I think there are far too many churches that are far too comfortable with our culture and tolerate almost anything and want to blend in and fit in and just be smooth and be a part of our culture. There is a place for godly intolerance the church at Ephesus was blessed it wasn't a great church but it was blessed for their intolerance of evil and this church is, is in danger of being cursed for their refusal to be intolerant for their refusal to draw a line I'm, you know I said earlier I want to balance my remarks we're a kingdom of priests we should reign over all of life that means that Christians should get involved in every sphere of life whatever your occupation may be well, a lot of you are training for ministry a lot of you are not and, and you know you're out there you're teaching in the schools and you're politicians or you're working for the utility companies or you know, you're out there as a policeman or whatever it is in, in, you know newspapers or managing a company or whatever the case may be maybe a lawyer you should do that for the Lord I'm not advocating world flight but I am advocating a refusal to fit in too much Because I think that's what Christ is teaching. Church of Thyatira, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, has similar sorts of problems. They tolerate a wicked woman. They're failing to test her teaching. Therefore, Jesus says, He is one who has eyes like blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze, as if to crush them under his feet. He says they need to be marked by love and increasing deeds. Well, they are marked by love and increasing deeds, but they're too tolerant. Again, liable to seductions, liable to compromises. So what we see is the vision of Christ uh, defines the church, gives the church its very nature. That's what Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and 3 are all about.